Hear now the word of the Lord. Our first text comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our second passage comes from the letter to the Corinthians, the first one, chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And finally, from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Since the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask for his help. Please, Holy Spirit, would you now meet with us, fellowship with us, commune with us, inhabit us, not simply for some experience that we might walk out of here with, though we are surely welcoming of that, but to have our very characters, our hearts, our minds transformed, wed closer to you and to one another as we consider these holy, inspired, divinely giving words. We pray that you would meet us with faith and wisdom and that we would listen with a discerning ear and with a faithful heart. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As Joe said, over the next few weeks, it's actually more than three weeks. I'm going to be here. I'm, I'm going to be here the next three weeks, and then I'm going to miss a couple of weeks, and I'll be back in June. It's something that Eric had already scheduled. Now, I'm going to be doing a series, all of those five weeks, on the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest Christian confessions of faith. It's actually was not written by the apostles. And by the way, if you hear me say that word apostles a lot, the the apostles were not like the religious uh, uh, version of the Avengers, but they were pastors actually who were chosen by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church by how they pastored people and then by also how they taught, what they taught. And so the creed is a summary of what the apostles taught. And so I want us this morning to consider these words of the creed, not because they are divinely given, but because they summarize what is divinely given. I want us to think about them pastorally, what it means for us to confess this and how we are even shaped in faith as disciples. The first words of the creed are, I believe. 
But that's actually getting a little bit ahead of where I want to go. Let's back up just to the word I. Yes, it's going to be that kind of sermon, a little bit of that kind of series. Um, That first word of the creed actually, I think, might be the strangest of all the wonderful and metaphysical things that are talked about in the creed. I is the strangest and maybe even the most contentious for us. Because who is the I saying, I believe? When you say, when we say I, we need to think about what we are saying. We need to think about who we are, who you are. And it's then that we can roll into this confession of what is supposed to be, I think, our most, an expression of our most fundamental allegiance, of our deepest expression of Christian knowledge and hope. Look, your identity, my identity, the content of I is constantly being challenged. It's contested. It's, it's not stable. It, it's being reconfigured by what's out there in the culture. It's actually being challenged and reconfigured in here, in the church, subculturally. There's all kinds of different influences. And there's, I think there's lots of different things that compete to define us most fundamentally. So let me give you some examples. I am an Oregonian, right? What does it mean to be an Oregonian? Well, it means you love beer, maybe. Uh, that you love being outdoors. That you're not too dressy and that you're not a Californian. I'm an American. We have a, a party in our country that says explicitly America first. Maybe you think of yourself as educated, that you are someone who has maybe committed to homeschool or private school or public school, or there's actually been a rebirth of this ancient Christian heresy, Gnosticism, when we see this devotion to secret knowledge, this, all the, the, the explosion of conspiracy theories that are now abundant. Or maybe the content is filled with gender. I am a man. I am a woman. Or I am something else. Content is filled with sex. Who is it that you desire romantically? That's often pushed right to the fore of what defines you. Or maybe it's something like race or ethnicity. I actually grew up being very proud and still am proud of my Czech. C-Z-E-C-H from a little small country in Europe. My Czech heritage. Or maybe for you it is Latino or something else. Or maybe you feel the content of I with, I am successful. I have stuff or I have status. Or maybe the way that you relate to it is you just cast it off and you make no claim or attachment to any of it, which is, it's kind of a a boutique Buddhism. I especially see this uh, in Portland, in the area of Portland where I live. But in addition to any of those things that I listed, I think that we all tend to think of ourselves as individuals, even radically so, that we are special, we are unique, and we are unique in a way of our own doing. It's a mindset that is reinforced, this this idea of self-creation. You know, one of our earliest poets, a guy named Walt Whitman in his uh, big changing uh, poem, Leaves of Grass, you remember how it starts out? Remember back to school? I celebrate myself. 
And that's very emblematic of kind of the idea of what I'm getting at. This emphasis on tastes of preferences, your purchasing choices, your vacations, your hobbies, the kind of work you have, the kind of work you won't do. That defines the eye. Lots of things actually having to do with how you make yourself or remake yourself, often anchored in how you consume things. Those compete to fill the content of who you are. Sociologist at uh, Berkeley, he's no longer with us, named Robert Bella, wrote a book a few years ago called Habits of the Heart. And he called this tendency to describe yourself, to define I, your identity this way, expressive individualism. It almost just feels like you're doing it to say it. Expressive individualism. You're putting your stamp out in the world. How do you know it when you recognize it? Let me give you some uh, proverbs, not proverbs like you'd find in the Bible, but proverbs that you and I maybe say and share. You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Now look, I've said these things before. I have acted on them. I have nodded when others have said them, and I will do it again. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But those are some of the signals. Those are some of the ways that you know that you're bumping into it. It's an author named Yuval Levin in his book, Fractured Republic, talks about this expressive individualism, this sense in how we are trying to create ourselves, this identity. He says expressive individualism suggests... Not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. Now listen to me here, because this is where Levin teaches us something important. He says, it is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are, and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. And we can do that with being Presbyterian or Reformed too, by the way. He, said, he goes on, the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is, a cre- is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it has given pride of place in our self-understanding. You see, the idea of freedom and rights is just kind of baked into the cake of what it means to be us right here, right now in America, in our culture. And I want to ask you, as, I, as you hear me drone on, and I hate it when other, you know, it's so funny when you preach, you're like, I, I hope that pre- preacher doesn't give a long quote, and then you get up there and do the same thing. So I apologize. But as you hear that long quote, and if you hung in there with me, I want to ask you, does it resonate? What he said, does it feel obvious? Does it feel like common sense? Because this is the air we breathe. It is our cultural atmosphere. And I do just want to give a quick qualification that not all of it is wrong or wrong-headed. There is a sense in which we are divinely made as individuals. Jesus said what? That the hairs of our head are numbered. But when we see this kind of radical individualism as our truest self, when this self-understanding is prior and preeminent to us, what happens? We fall apart. We become untethered. We become isolated. We become shallow in need of something more. Why? Because this 
worst self, this shadow side of being an individual, is always seeking, but never finding. It's just like a bee going from one flower to the next, trying to make yourself something more. It's always craving, but never satisfied. I mean, have you ever thought, if I just buy that suit or that blouse or that next book or whatever, then I will have arrived or find that right church or modify my body the right way, whether it's by a tattoo or CrossFit. That's a little bit of what it's about. You see, this self is not stable and the way that other people are used is simply as props to affirm the search, your search for your most authentic self. And the deal we make in our relationships with others is to do the same thing for them. And the label that we give to this is tolerance. We say, you do you. And now what you need to tell me is to tell me you do you. And we'll agree to just keep saying that back and forth. But there's actually no accountability or accounting or maturity. Remember what Augustine said. He's actually, he was talking about this 1500 years ago. He said, our heart He wrote this in his confessions, really just talking about how he came to Christ. Our heart is restless until it rests in you, O God. That is the I. That is the identity of being self-creating and restless, looking for shape and rest that we are confronted with day in, day out. I want to tell you, that is not your truest self. That is not your Christian self. That is not the I who is speaking whenever we confess the creed. So what is? Who is the I who is saying, I believe? Well, the creed was used as an early confession of faith. It was actually used as a baptismal vow, a membership question, a membership admission when someone was baptized. So interestingly enough, The creed doesn't include anything about baptism in it, but baptism and creed are wed together. They are are coupled as confession and sign. And so the I that speaks is the body of Christ. You are joined to Christ by faith in baptism with others. And and that means that you are bound up with all of the other commitments and truths that that confession is entails because the apostles creed this creed is community words shared words I mean, think about this the truest and most important things that we can ever say are not individual words but communal words at least for me most of the individual words of my life are just trivial fleeting I would just hate to have a microphone hung from my neck all the time to just record all the nonsense. Not bad, not sin, just nonsense that comes out of my mouth throughout the day. And these individual words, they just fall from our lips and they drift away like dead leaves. Including the words that we use to try and forge and self-create an identity. But what you say as a community, especially when you say, I believe in God, those words do something. They build, they abide, they structure you as a human 
and as a Christian. Look at, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2 that you have pointed, uh, printed there for you. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To confess the creed is to take up a counter-cultural stance. It's to put your shoulder, not in an ugly, fish-shaking way, but put, put your shoulder against the grain of our culture. The Australian theologian Ben Meyer says this, that when we say the creed, we're not just expressing our own views, our own priorities. We are joining our voices. Think of this. We are joining our voices to a great communal voice that calls out across the centuries from every tribe and every tongue. We locate ourselves as a part of that community that transcends time and space. We are centered as God's and as each other's. See, another way to put it is that we are acknowledging before God and to ourselves and with other saints that is what is most true about us as individuals and together with others is what? That we are made with dignity to know and to be known by our Creator, God. That we are redeemed from bondage to sin by the Son and we are formed by the Spirit in community. Our identity is most truly what God gives us and makes us in Christ by trust in Him. That is the I. That is who you are. Who is the I? We were made for God. But sin ruined these desires that we naturally have to seek Him. We seek to fill what? This, this God-shaped void that we have with God's creation, not God. But now we have been found by Jesus. And the hold that sin has over us, had over us, is broken. It is destroyed at the cross. And now we are being held together as individuals and collectively by the Holy Spirit with others who share that same thing, a need of grace. And think about this. In baptism, nobody is invited to come up with their own personal statement of belief. All are invited to be immersed, sprinkled into a reality beyond themselves and to join their individual voices to a communal voice that transcends them all. I mean, I think this is part of what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. We need other people, not just to affirm us in a constant search to self-create, but to uphold us, to shape us as solid, grace-filled people. So do you want to be free of that restlessness, of feeling enthralled to the whims of the culture or subculture? The creed helps us out. Why? Because it is said by lots of different people, lots of different cultures, lots of different places, different times and circumstances. It's a way of actually being catechized by people who aren't here and yet in a mysterious way are bearing witness to one another. You see, we are reminded by confessing the creed that God has saved others in different times, that God has gotten them through 
And we remember God's faithfulness then. And we affirm it now for one another. That's why we say it corporately together. And think about this. We speak it forward to Christians in the future who will look back and say those saints... Those weirdos at Ascension, they said this. They laid the foundation for us to go forward. We are a part of this great chain of Christian being, and we participate in that by confessing our common faith. Put it like this. I think Brian Buck preached here last week, and the church where I attend is is the church he pastors. And so if he used this illustration... That's too bad for me. But he used this illustration in worship one time. He was talking about something else, but he said this, or I'm saying this, the creed is kind of like a wormhole. All right. I don't mean like a wormhole that you dig in the dirt. A wormhole is actually a theoretical passage through space time that could create a shortcut for long journeys through the universe. So it's kind of like folding a piece of paper, right? If you want to get from here to here, the wormhole, boom, gets you there. If you want to go from here to China, get you there. You want to go to China 500 years from now, boom, the wormhole gets you there. This isn't just me making it up. It isn't going to Avengers movies. It is Einstein in 1935 used this theory of general relativity to propose the existence of such bridges in space-time. Now, uh, I do want to give this caveat. A professor at University of Oregon, Stephen Hughes, said this. The whole thing is very hypothetical at this point. No one thinks that we're going to find a wormhole anytime soon. But I think we've already found one. Because I want to argue not from physics, but from theology that we have already found these bridges. It's gathered worship. It's what we do every Sunday. But it's especially confessing the creed. You see, we're folding the paper between heaven What the world will be one day. What the saints triumphant. Those who have gone to the Lord now. Who are with Christ. And then we're connecting it to earth. What the world is now. Who Christians are now. We're even reaching back in time. To who they were. And you see by that wormhole. By the creed. By the confessing of this. By the power and presence of the spirit. You are made whole. And you are held up by this divine community. Across space and time. And you know what, that being a part of that community, it doesn't erase you as an individual. In fact, it deepens you in the reality of God. Look at Galatians 3 real quick and we'll land the plane. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now look, (laughs) of course, there are still women and men. Of course, there are still Greeks. Oregonians, whatever you want to fill the content is. But those things, those identities now are made secondary. And they are shaped and discipled by the presence and power of Jesus who inhabits and connects all of us together. And we have those identities in such a way that they are not predominant, and shouldn't predominate in a sinful way, but rather they are transformed in a Christian way. So who are you? Who am I? Let me leave you with another creed, another confession. Heidelberg chapter one or question one. Who are you? I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.
And because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Let's pray.